This educational series is supported by independent educational grants from the following companies. AbbVie, Astellas, AstraZeneca, Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals, Inc., Janssen Biotech, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Merck, and Pfizer Incorporated. Hi, this is Vic Nitti, Chair of the AUA Office of Education, and today we are discussing case-based discussions in prostate cancer. This is part of a series to help improve the urologic healthcare team's ability to care for patients with advanced prostate cancer. I will let Mike Cookson introduce himself and the case. I'm Dr. Michael Cookson, currently the professor and chairman at the University of Oklahoma, and I work at the Stevenson Cancer Center in Oklahoma City. I'm bringing to you today the changing landscape of advanced prostate cancer treatment, a guidelines and case-based discussion. In case study number five, Dr. Leonard Gamella will explore the role of genetic testing in advanced patients with metastatic castration resistance. What you can expect to learn from this is the role of genetic testing in these patients and how the results of these genetic tests can be applied to patients, including selection of new therapeutic agents. You can also expect to learn about the emerging field of precision-based medicine, and in particular, the findings when patients harboring germline defects or somatic changes in DNA damage repair, such as BRCA1 or 2, uh, are appropriate candidates for a new class of drugs, including PARP inhibitors, which there are currently two approved agents in this setting for patients who have uh, failed prior therapy and have this particular finding. Also, comma, there is an opportunity in patients with somatic changes, such as the finding of microsatellite instability high uh, tumors to be potential candidates for immunotherapy in the form of a pembrolizumab. So these are some uh, exciting new therapies that have been woven into this particular uh, case demonstration. Thank you, Mike. Dr. Gamella, please provide an overview of the case history. So this is our patient, a 62-year-old. He develops uh, urinary um, uh, fre uh, frequency. Um, and uh, first PSA was 55, repeated as we always do, was 49. No family history of, uh, of prostate cancer and had a, uh, uh, a mother, uh, an aunt with breast cancer. So um, the prostate biopsy was done. He had very aggressive disease. Uh, most of the cores positive for Gleason 4 plus 3. Too numerous to count lesions on his bone scan. Uh, CAT scan, uh, primary pelvic lymphadenopathy. What are the initial treatment options for this patient? This is uh, castrate-sensitive uh, 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 metastatic prostate cancer. ADT monotherapy, ADT with apalutamide or Enza. ADT with docetaxel. So as you guys should be uh, experts at this point, uh, all of these are options for this man with uh, newly diagnosed metastatic prostate cancer. All are fair, all are fair treatment options and need to be customized. Uh, and I think that was a big take home message today that is not a one size 
fits all patients for uh, not one not one size fits all treatment for patients with advanced prostate cancer. What other aspects of the case should be considered? So uh, this man, uh, because of the high volume, goes undergoes ADT and six cycles of dose cycles of dose of taxil. Uh, he does undergo germline testing per uh, guidelines and interestingly has a BRCA1 germline mutation. Uh, and of course, further genetic counseling was, uh, was uh, recommended and um, uh, cascade testing was also suggested. Uh, the brothers didn't want to be tested, but the two sisters uh, agreed to be uh, tested. Uh, and he had a pretty good response. A year later, his PSA was down to 4.3. He was continued on his ADT after his six cycles of docetaxel, but gradually his PSA rose to 37. Over the next three years, he went through the usual cycle of different agents, abiraterone, enzalutamide, and uh, cabezataxel. So if we look at where this man falls into, this is the latest on germline testing. Uh, and you will can see that for early stage disease, uh, we now have a series of recommendations uh, based on the risk and family history from the NCCN. So again, as we've refocused uh, you all today several times, germline testing has become a standard of care. And this is all for localized disease. But even more important, uh, when you have metastatic disease, um, either M0 or M1, again, germline testing with or without tumor testing uh, is likewise recommended. So the molecular and biomarker analysis of the tumor, again, when you have metastasis, uh, includes both looking for uh, uh, any homologous recombination gene mutations, again, in our BRCA1 or 2 family, or uh, as Alicia talked about, looking for microsatellite instability or DNA mismatch repair or tumor mutational burden, uh, which I think is becoming something that I don't know actually if the uh, NCCN guidelines have that, but it's all in the same family of, uh, of advanced somatic testing in patients such as this. So now the man has a real problem. Um, now four years after the diagnosis uh, with the metastatic, metastatic castrate resistant uh, prostate cancer, he develops this massive inguinal adenopathy PSA goes to 65, confirmed that he is castrate uh, on his LHRH analog. And now we're faced with a situation of a man who's failed multiple courses of chemotherapy, androgen receptor pathway inhibitors. He has less lesions on bone scan, but has really now very pronounced retroperitoneal adenopathy. What are reasonable options for this patient? Repeat staging has fewer bone lesions, but pronounced retroperitoneal adenopathy? Uh, and these are our choices. Do we do CIP-T? Do we radium-223? Do we switch to LHRH agonist to an LHRH antagonist? Or do we consider somatic uh, tumor testing of the lymph node? So in this patient, the most reasonable option, we have uh, the, the picture tells it all. We have a nice big juicy lymph node there. So uh, this man underwent somatic tumor testing of the lymph node. Uh, in general, sipulusal T uh, at this late in the course is not usually, uh, is, is not indicated uh, with this uh, particular setting. Radium-223, again, is primarily used for bony metastasis within the absence of uh, visceral metastasis. And again, he still has uh, not only inguinal adenopathy, but retroperitoneal adenopathy. 
Uh, so radium-223 would not be uh, used. And switching from an agonist to a antagonist, again, he already has a suppressed testosterone, so it would not, at least on the surface, offer us any uh, advantage. So in this particular man, he did have that BRCA1 both in his tumor and his germline, uh, but also he, this man also happened to have a very high tumor mutational burden with greater than 10 mutations per megabase, uh, and he was uh, eligible also for pembrolizumab. Traditionally, uh, these tests, the solid tumor uh, biopsies, are looking at over 300 known mutations. And again, just recently, the liquid biopsy may be able to replace some of these solid tumor assays. But right now, the majority of information we have out there for how to treat this man comes from solid tumor biopsy. So his biopsy of his groin node was positive for the same BRCA1 germline that he had on his buccal smear. Uh, and he did have another uh, indication here, MSH high, uh, for uh, for the treatment, I said micro. Uh, I did say micro uh, tumor mutational burden, but it was also uh, in his case microsatellite insufficiently high. Decision was made. He was eligible for olaparib. It was started at 300 milligrams PO twice a day. He had a reasonable response with his PSA going down to 13 and a significant reduction in his groin node. Uh, however, as the months went on, he did develop significant anemia. Uh, and the patient was very symptomatic from his anemia. So if you happen to start using uh, a PARP inhibitor, Olaparib or Rucaparib, and you develop significant anemia, um, how is that side effect best managed? Uh, and is that managed by using another PARP inhibitor? Is that managed by dose reduction? Should you completely stop the medication? Or is there some benefit to uh, adding uh, high-dose steroids to this in this particular setting? So uh, it, it seems that uh, all of the PARP inhibitors, the first strategy when you have significant uh, side effect profile is through dose reduction. Uh, and this was uh, something that was uh, offered to this man. It, with the class effect of anemia, uh, it does not appear going to another PARP inhibitor would help you that much. Certainly discontinuation of the medication is always an option, but there is a reason that the manufacturers uh, have different dose levels uh, of the pill available uh, so that you can, in fact, it's almost like, uh, I might've mentioned this earlier, it's almost like they have an expectation that many patients will need a dose reduction uh, to help them deal with the side effect profile. But certainly discontinuation is always a possibility does not appear there's any role for addition of high dose, uh, high dose uh, rate steroids uh, in this particular setting. Just a typical example from uh, one of the early Olaparib studies uh, and the side effect profile. Um, and you'll see that whether you're at the 300 milligram dose or the 400 milligram dose, uh, you'll see uh, common problems, uh, anemia, fatigue, back pain. Um, the uh, platelet counts can sometimes uh, uh, be a problem. And again, every once in a while, you will run into some significant uh, GI tract toxicity. Uh, and in the Olaparib trial, about 20% of the patients actually had to have their uh, medication stopped because of side effects. So uh, again, you look at the sort of the class effect of the PARP inhibitors. Most of the time, uh, they're low grade. Uh, one of the ones that can be really troubling uh, is anemia. 
Uh, there can be some GI side effect uh, with this nausea, vomiting, uh, asthenia. Yeah, occasionally we'll run into uh, uh, hepatic uh, enzyme elevations. Uh, but again, dose reduction uh, allows you to tailor uh, the treatment and sometimes allow them to continue on long-term treatment even at a lower dose, whether it is the, low, the Olaparib or the Rucaparib. So in this particular patient, the Olaparib dose reduction did not really approve his anemia. Uh, he required multiple transfusions. Uh, since he did have the MSH high on his somatic testing. Uh, and again, you really can't detect MSH or tumor mutational butum uh, burden on a buccal swab. To my knowledge, you have to go with a somatic or a liquid biopsy. Uh, and again, Pembro is a choice for him. Uh, and again, as we've talked about many times, Pembro is solid tumor agnostic, as long as you have a, a high tumor mutational burden or the MSH high. Uh, and at that point, should he continue to have further progression, he was going to be offered a clinical trial because he had burned through really all his uh, approved options. When you start getting to third and fourth line treatments, uh, you get more and more involved with genetic testing guiding you, uh, whether it is using a PARP inhibitor such as Rucaparib or Laparib, or looking at something like Pembro uh, for something that the patient may uh, potentially uh, have a good response to. So, Thank you, Dr. Gamella. Thank you, Mike. I will let David Gerard introduce himself and the case. My name is Dr. David Gerard. I'm a professor and vice chair of urology at the University of Wisconsin and a, an associate director in the Carbone Cancer Center. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Josh Lang, an associate professor of medicine and co-director of the Tumor Microbiology Program at the Carbone Cancer Center. He will be joining us today uh, for this discussion and case presentation. This podcast will be dealing with metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer, both post-dosetaxol chemotherapy and end-of-life care. Uh, this is a podcast in our continuing series on the changing landscape of advanced prostate cancer treatment. Options for patients with metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer have expanded remarkably in the last few years, and this success has been reflected in the improved survival of patients. Uh, today, Dr. Lang will be providing insight into the role of metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer post-docetaxel chemotherapy, as well as end-of-life care via case study discussion. This is the final part in our series on the changing landscape of advanced prostate cancer. So using a case format today, we'll emphasize several points that include the timing and sequencing of the five classes of FDA approved therapies, uh, the treatment of neuroendocrine cancer and its considerations. We'll talk some about the impact of uh, personalized medicine and genetics uh, on treatment and end with end-of-life considerations. So Dr. Lang, if you'd begin by providing an overview of the case history. A patient um, with metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer who has progressed on docetaxel chemotherapy. Right. So this is a gentleman, 73 years old, uh, diagnosed 11 years ago with a PSA of nine. Um, a Gleason 3 plus 4 adenocarcinoma was identified. He underwent a prostatectomy. 
unfortunately, had a biochemical recurrence and received salvage radiation. Um, due to continued rise in his PSA, a year later, he started ADT. He was found to have increasing pelvic lymphadenopathy and um, ultimately developed CRPC after five years and had new bone metastases. So for this gentleman, he went on next to abiraterone acetate. But unfortunately, he only had six months of benefit before he progressed with new bone metastases that were causing pain. So we transitioned to a therapy again that targets uh, this disease in a different approach with docetaxel. Um, he did complete six cycles of docetaxel. And then for most patients after six cycles, they're ready for a break. Um, whether it's fatigue, uh, just from the cumulative effect of those therapies, many patients are ready. So we said, let's take eight weeks off. And he came back later um, at that time, eight weeks with a recurrent evaluation. And not surprisingly, he had PSA progression and his bone pain was worsened. So then when we look at the treatment options, what could we consider? Cabazitaxel chemotherapy, as we've discussed, enzalutamide, as we've discussed, or platinum doublets or clinical trials. We're looking at, we've got enzalutamide on the list, CIPT, platinum doublet chemotherapy, cabazitaxel, and radium-223. Um, so this is, these are all FDA-approved options. Uh, as we've discussed, I think we have multiple options here available for this patient that could be considered. But this is also a really important time. If we have not done either somatic testing, that should be done absolutely. Or should we also consider a biopsy of a metastatic site? So this was a study that I've referenced a couple of different times today, um, published by Dr. Agarwal and JCO. And this is where 148 patients had a biopsy performed of a metastatic site. Um, and it could be any metastatic site, whether that was bone, lymph node, liver, uh, lung. Importantly, what they found with a morphologic histologic analysis, they found that 17% of patients, regardless of histologic site, had what they called a treatment-associated small cell neuroendocrine cancer. Um, when they looked at the molecular analysis, they often found common androgen receptor amplifications in these patients as well. Um, and importantly, again, as I said, this was not dependent on disease site. So this is for our patient. We really need to ask ourselves, are we still dealing with an adenocarcinoma or could this be that roughly one out of five, one out of six patients that has a more neuroendocrine signature? Again, one that we would not expect benefit from another AR targeted therapy. So we've already talked about cabazitaxel as one uh, semi-synthetic taxane that is FDA approved. One of the things I did want to talk about is the AFFIRM phase three clinical trial of enzalutamide. Now this was the original FDA approval, so going back to 2012. And again, this was for patients post-docetaxel. <clears throat> Importantly, this was before we had widespread use of some of the AR therapies or, or um, radium-223. What we found in this trial, again, was that this was a positive study. It did improve survival, 18.4 um, versus 13.6 months. And importantly, we also saw improvements in that trial for patients who had visceral metastases. It was not as significant as those without visceral metastases, however, but we did see improvements in survival for those patients as well. We've already talked about the TROPIC clinical trial, which was shown to improve survival for these patients. And the case discussion today is for this patient is, well, what type of malignancy do we think our patient has? And what biomarkers would influence our treatment choice? And then what are those tests that we should order? And is chemotherapy the best option for our patient? Dr. Lang, what are the best treatment options for this patient with symptomatic 
metastatic castration resistant prostate cancer post docetaxel chemotherapy. And just talk a little bit more about treatment sequence. So just again, to reiterate the point um, <clears throat> where the AFFIRM trial was uh, FDA approved before we had multiple different ARSIs, but enzalutamide is still an option to consider. Um, we've talked about the CARD trial and where cabazitaxel is um, recommended or a taxane therapy um, instead of going abiraterone to enzalutamide. Um, in terms of what are the potential drivers of the disease, and I think this is really where we want to think about getting other molecular testing to better understand what's the best option for this patient going forward. So we've talked about the preference for soft tissue biopsies as we often can get better quality genetic testing for those patients, um, though bone biopsies are certainly available. Again, just to reiterate, if we do end up getting a bone biopsy, always ask for multiple frozen cores um, to be reserved for genetic testing. One of the other things, especially as we think about what types of genetic alterations, we've talked about the ones that are targetable. So MSI high prostate cancers, high tumor mutation burden cancers. Again, a small minority of patients, but if you find them, it's important to have that option available. We've talked about DDR mutations. Um, there's a lot of really exciting work going on in terms of classifying different genomic alterations and epigenomic changes as well that associate with those high AR pathway cancers versus the low AR signaling activity pathway cancers. You know, I've mentioned a couple times um, mutations such as RB and P53, which are ones that we do see more commonly in those much more aggressive prostate cancers, especially the ones that land on that neuroendocrine spectrum. We're also starting to see other alterations. So for example, in the PIK3CA pathway, RAF, inhibitor, RAF kinase inhibitors, CDK alterations as well. So these are some of the other exciting molecular alterations. We have drug development happening for patients with these types of cancers as well. So we're hoping that over the next few months, that over the next few years, that we'll have new treatment options for patients with these types of prostate cancers as well. Um, and let's see, and in the interest of time, I'm just gonna jump ahead um, to this last slide here on aggressive variant prostate cancer. <clears throat> so this is a type of disease that has been um, clinically identified for many years. And this was one study that was led by Dr. Ana Aparicio at MD Anderson, looking at the use of carboplatin and docetaxel or cisplatin etoposide for patients who have these very aggressive features. So again, things we've already talked about in terms of patients who have a very short duration of response to ADT, less than a year, a low PSA relative to a tumor burden, bulky tumor metastases, or patients with visceral disease. Um, what Dr. Aparicio and colleagues found was that for patients in this setting, that there were response rates um, and progression-free survival after four cycles of either of these therapies. 65% um, of patients for the first line, carbo or, um, docetaxel with carboplatin, and then for patients getting cisplatin etoposide, that we could see PFS in 33%, 34% of these patients. And that there was an improvement in survival, again, for patients who have these very aggressive cancers. So what this data tells us is that there are two of these different platinum doublet regimens that could be used. Now, again, this is not something that we often use in the first-line setting. This is in the post-docetaxel setting that we think about these therapies. So this was another trial that was um, performed um, looking for patients, again, with this uh, very aggressive prostate cancer. 
and patients were randomized to receive either cabazitaxel or cabazitaxel with carboplatinate at AUC of four. Um, and what they found in this trial was that that combination of carbocabazi was better than cabazitaxel alone. Again, really still targeting those patients with these very aggressive prostate cancers and all of the features that we've already discussed. So again, platinum doublet therapies should be considered for those patients where we say, you know what, this is just a bad cancer. We need to think about something else. The toxicities are real though. Myelosuppression, again, still very common, important to manage with GCSF prophylaxis. Fatigue, nausea, other things that can be managed and dose reductions are important when we talk about these combination therapies. All right, so coming back to our patient, um, he's progressed and we have these different treatment options. We think about while we're looking at these options, at the same time, we're all still very worried. We know that these are patients that their survival may be short, even potentially less than a year. So something that we do advocate <clears throat> are palliative care consults, especially for my patients who are progressing on docetaxel chemotherapy. I think about those three uh, different options that I think palliative care provides. One is symptom management. Um, two is communication with family members struggling in these difficult situations. And then three is for end-of-life care transitions. We know from other diseases like lung cancer that the earlier use of palliative care providers has not only been shown to improve quality of life, but actually had a survival benefit. And I think that came from really more optimal management of symptomatic disease. So that's where we really try to get our palliative care consults um, in, in that post-docetaxel setting even though we do have multiple therapies left to use. Uh, palliative radiation, when patients are having symptomatic disease, even a single fraction can provide a palliative benefit. And then also pain management. We know that when we better control our patient's symptoms, they can be more active. They have better quality of life. We don't worry about addiction from opiates when patients have bone, uh, can't pain from bone metastases. So that's something that I actively counsel my patients on, the importance of using opiates and even steroids, prednisone, five migs twice a day, or dexamethasone, all have been shown to confer a palliative benefit. Again, doesn't defer or change my therapeutic recommendations from a treatment perspective, but again, these options absolutely can improve quality of life for patients with aggressive prostate cancers. So that's all I have. Thank you so much for your time and attention. This has really been um, an exciting day and presentation and so glad that we could perform this with Zoom. I'm gonna hand the mic off to Dr. Gerard and Dr. Cookson to end our session today. Great, well, thank, thanks Dr. Lang. Uh, and thanks for taking us way, all the way to the end there. Uh, some really great information there uh, with regard to the management of the Dr. Josh Lang, an Associate Professor of Medicine and Co-Director of the Tumor Microbiology Program at the Carbone Cancer Center. Thank you, David. For more information, please visit auanet.org/university.